1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. We're going to look at verses 12 through 19. Uh, and I want you to, as we dive into this passage today, it is a, it's almost another world. It's almost another place when we think about our lives as Christians. When we think about what believers are going through that Peter writes to, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense in our cultural context when we begin to talk about persecution. And so the, you're, you're going to need to think through this in your own life. What are the ways in which this is going to flesh out in your own life? How can you pursue the joy that Peter talks about here in being persecuted for your faith, which sounds strange. But if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word as we begin our time together. Hear the word of Christ beginning in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh God, we should tremble before those words because they clearly remind us of the cost of the gospel. What it means to follow Jesus in this world. God, we live in a world that is cursed with sin and death. We live in a world that at its heart is anti-Christ. And so when we say we are for Christ, there will be tension. And God, I pray by your grace and your mercy, we would embrace it with joy. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. On the screen, there should be a picture of a baptism. And this was in 2015 at our Lexington campus. And the young lady being baptized there, her name is Emily Wang. She's from China. Uh, in the baptistry, she told stories about meeting Christians in her own country. How they would have to hide away in buildings without chairs. How they, they wouldn't be able to sing music because people would hear them singing hymns and they would be arrested. And she recounted stories of believers from China who shared the gospel with her. And she didn't understand why someone would go through so much trouble to be a Christian. Why would you do that? And over and over, people shared the gospel with her until she finally believed the gospel. And we got to uh, disciple her at our Ashland-Lexington campus as she attended the University of Kentucky. But I'll never forget these words from her in the baptistry. She said, in two weeks, I go back to China. Life will not get easier after this baptism. My parents will not understand. My friends will think I'm weird. I could lose my Communist Party membership. It will be harder for me to find a job now. It will be harder for me to find a husband. And then after laying that out in some detail... She said these words that just punched me in the gut. She said, but I will take up my cross and follow him. And then with tears in her eyes, she began to speak in her own language because she knew her parents in China were watching. 
and she had asked them to watch online. And she turned to her parents and said, I know you think I'm just a silly girl. I know you think I do stupid things, but believe me, this is the wisest choice I can make in my life. And two weeks later, she went back home believing with everything within her that her parents were going to disown her. And yet those words, I will take up my cross and follow him. I, it just punched me in the gut. Because we talk about these things here. We preach those things because they're in the Bible. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. But, but I will say that's probably the closest thing to 1 Peter that I've encountered. Someone who knew they would be disowned. They would go back to their own country and probably wouldn't be able to find a job or a husband because of their faith in Jesus and still embraced it and still followed Christ because he had died for them and saved their soul. The truth is, as we work through 1 Peter, the hardest part about teaching 1 Peter is I'm so far away from the context in which Peter writes. To be honest, it's not hard to be a pastor in Richmond, Kentucky. It's not. Now, when I'm out and I'm talking to people and uh, trying to build relationships with them at my kids' games or schools or coffee shops or wherever, and I, I, I begin to, uh, you know, have conversation, and they turn to me and say, now, what do you do? There's always that awkward moment when I say, well, I'm a pastor. And, and the only thing awkward about it is they're standing there thinking, what have I said in the last five minutes to a pastor? And is he going to invite me to church? That's, that's about it. That's about all the suffering that I endure as a pastor in Richmond, Kentucky for the name of Christ. Nobody's going to arrest us today when we leave here. The city might for our parking conditions, but that's okay. <laughs> but not because we believe the gospel and we're following Jesus Christ. And yet Peter here says, when those things happen to you, there's joy. In some sense, we should be convicted because we don't have those opportunities for joy. We should be convicted of that. Where, where do I find that in my own life? Peter says those are opportunities for joy. Notice verse 12, he says, Beloved, this is a group of people who are suffering in the same way our friend on the screen was suffering. And yet Peter says you're still loved. This is a pastoral term. You've been loved by God. And I want you to understand, even though you're suffering this fiery trial, God still loves you. You're not being judged by God. He, he uses the term here, fiery trial, which means painful, painful circumstance. But, but it's also a play on words because if you remember, many Christians in Rome at this time are suffering because Nero has started a rumor that Christians tried to burn down Rome. And so he is lighting Christians on fire at his dinner parties. Christians are the street lamps throughout the city of Rome. They're hanging on the side of the road burning. And throughout the Roman world, many are suffering because of this scandal, this rumor. They're losing their jobs. Friends and families won't have anything to do with them. They are being labeled religious terrorists. 
We've got to keep these people out. Can't have anything to do with them. And he says, even though you're enduring this fiery trial, don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked by it. It's come upon you, notice the text, to test you. And we talked about this testing earlier in 1 Peter, where by fire, gold, metal, silver, it's refined by fire. The impurities are burned off. And he says, when you endure suffering in this way, understand God is making you real. He's proving that what you believe is real. He's giving you a faith that's like gold. That is a value, a faith that displays Jesus is worth it all. The most valuable thing you could have is hope and confidence in the kingdom of Christ. And that's what God is giving you when you suffer, when you're tested. And he says, don't be surprised or shocked as though, notice, something strange were happening to you, as though something odd is going on. No, this suffering has design. It, 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 it makes sense. It's not out of place. There's order to it. And that's why in verse 13 he says, but rejoice. And this is a command. The command is joy. So as you endure suffering, joy. Have hope, have confidence. It, the word means contentment. You trust God no matter what. And so with tears in your eyes, disappointment in your heart, rejection in your gut, alone, you can still have joy because of the gospel. Your joy is rooted in Jesus and nothing else. And so you can still have hope and joy when you suffer. But notice, insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ... The, the extent in which you suffer for Jesus is the extent in which you can have joy. It doesn't make any sense to us. The level at which you can have joy is when you suffer for the name of Jesus. And by the way, that's what he's talking. He's not talking about generic suffering. Everybody on the planet suffers. We live in a world cursed with sin and death. We suffer because other people are sinners. We suffer because we're sinners. We suffer because sickness and death exist in this world. And our hope is in a day when it will not. And God can use all of that for our good. But the suffering he's talking about here is actually suffering. Notice, Christ's sufferings. You share with them. You are bound to his sufferings. You are known for his sufferings. Literally, you have fellowship with Jesus in His sufferings. And when this happens in your life, He says, rejoice. Notice that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. His point there in verse 13 is what suffering is doing and the perseverance through suffering, what it's doing to you is proving you're a Christian. Proving you really know Jesus. So persevere. So you prove that you're real. That's what the verse means. I tried to make it mean something else in my own life this week. But that's what it means. Have joy. So you know when Jesus comes, you will be with him forever. Don't turn away from the sufferings that come from following Jesus. There's a day when the sky will split wide open and the kingdom will be revealed. The question is, are you a part of the kingdom? Can you rejoice now? When you suffer for Christ. Now, too often in our culture, when we suffer, we're shocked. We're scandalized. It's a surprise to us that people would disagree with Christians. Why would you disagree with me? I am right. 
Why don't you agree with everything I say? Why don't you vote every way I vote? Why don't you think every way I think? You disagree with me? You're going to take things from me? You're going to mock me? Why? We're shocked by it. Peter says, relax. It's by design. That's who you are in the world. You are a part of another kingdom. So the kingdoms of this world will hate you at some point. It's a promise of what Jesus said. Jesus said, if the world hated me, guess what? It will hate you too. To the extent you look like Jesus, there's going to be tension in your life. To the extent you live like Jesus, you're going to suffer with Jesus. And so when the opportunity comes for us, do we get angry, do we get frustrated, or do we say joy? You disagree with me? Oh, yes, this is an opportunity for joy. Not, not being a jerk. This is great. Because I must be aligned with Jesus when there's tension. When there's awkwardness. Get to the point where, man, if I say this, if I just sit down and just lay it out there, hey, buddy, I'm going to lay it out there for you now. you got to believe in Jesus or you're going to hell. When I, if I say that, there's going to be awkward. There's going to be tension. I may never have coffee with this person again. Joy. Now you're going to have coffee with people you don't like. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't be surprised by the moment and understand it's coming and it's proving this is real. It's proof it's real in your life. Notice he says, if you are insulted for the name, literally reputation, you can even translate that fame of Jesus. You are blessed. There is a grace that is resting upon your life because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus, what Jesus is known for, there is grace, there is favor. There is literally the presence of God in your life when you're insulted for the name of Jesus. That's a sign of blessing, not a sign of judgment or frustration. God's not judging you. He's proving to you that what you believe is real when you're insulted for the name of Jesus. Because you're like Jesus in those moments. And it's proof, notice, the spirit of glory and of God lives on you when you're insulted in that way. The, the role of the spirit has always been to point to Jesus from beginning to end. And the spirit's presence is the presence of God and of the kingdom. And, and what the Spirit does as the presence of the kingdom is point to the king. We see that at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus, is baptism, when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends like a dove, and what do you hear from heaven? This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the role of the Spirit to declare this is God's king. And He's done that throughout all of history. That's why the Spirit of God wrote the Bible to point to Jesus. Every book in the Bible is about Jesus. The Spirit is pointing to Jesus. The Spirit has pointed you to Jesus if you're a Christian. That's how you became a Christian. Was you read the Spirit's book, the Spirit's gospel, and the Spirit changed your heart and said, make Jesus your king, and you believed in Jesus, and He became your king. The Spirit has tied you to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does in your life. And so Peter says, if you're a Christian, the Spirit doesn't stop doing that. Your life is a sign that points to King Jesus. And so when you suffer, 
What you say is, oh, my life must be pointing to King Jesus. The Spirit must be using me to do that. When people don't like Jesus, and notice it's the name of Jesus. The Spirit has tied your reputation, what you're known for, together with Jesus. And so when the world looks at you, they see the fame of Jesus. You make much of Jesus in all you do. And there are going to be times when you're insulted. And he says, this is grace. This is a blessing from God when this happens. Because it means the Spirit is using you. It means the Spirit is resting upon you. And so he says here, verse 15, he wants to be clear. Don't suffer as a criminal, as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer. And he even throws in the last word of verse 15 when he says a meddler. That means an agitator. That means we don't suffer as those who go around and just agitate people. We're not jerks for Jesus. We're we're not going around picking fights for Jesus. By the way, Jesus does that well himself. Jesus can pick his own fights. You don't stir it up. No, you live for Jesus. You proclaim the name of Jesus, and it's going to happen. If it's about Jesus, you're going to have enough trouble without stirring it up. And he says, don't have that reputation of a jerk who stirs up dissension. That's not your reputation. Your reputation is Jesus. And notice verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, the word means little Christ. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, term Christian in this context didn't mean what it meant or what it means today. It would be like using a racial slur to describe someone. That's what that word would mean. Christians were not valued. They they were not respected. It meant little Christ. It meant you aligned yourself with that blaspheming Jesus of Nazareth, the blasphemer who was hung on a cross, king of the Jews, mocked by, by, by his own people. The Roman government brutally killed him on a trash heap. And you're saying he's king? You're an idiot. You're a fool. You're willing to suffer for him? You are stupid. That's what the word Christian meant in that context. And what Peter says, if someone uses that term of you, be glad. Yes! They're calling me a fool for Jesus. That's good. Don't be, notice, ashamed. But glorify What he says is when when someone makes fun of you, slanders you for being a Christian, that doesn't cause you to shirk back. That causes you, notice he says, glorify the name, which means lift it up even more. You don't run from the fight. I, I will proudly wear the insult, Christian. I will proudly wear the name of Christ, even though my reputation is marred. That's hard for us to understand in our culture because Christian is a term we've just grown to sort of respect. I I know things are changing in our culture. We'll talk about that in a moment. But for the most part, we've never been made fun of for we're a Christian. I know in the 80s youth group, we used to describe situations where you would go to school and be made fun of a Christian. That never happened to me as a Christian. I was never, I don't know where we... No, it was pretty easy life as a Christian growing up in the South for me. It's not the case for Christians around the world, but for us, that's hard for us to wrap our head around that we're really going to be made fun of because we're a Christian. 
But I wonder if it's the name Christian or, or just that title. I wonder if it's the name Christian or is it that we're really being Christians and we really believe this? Because it is odd and weird, even in our culture, if we really get down to what we really believe, it is strange. We're, we're so used to talking about it, and it's so commonplace in our history that we've never thought about how weird it is. But, but, but you know how crazy what the Spirit is doing in your life really is? What the story that the Spirit is really telling? Have you ever thought about it? You know, the media can say we're idiots and stupid and backward. What we should do during this time is say, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I still believe pro-life. I still have a conservative view of the family, gender. I believe all that. But I believe a lot more crazy things than that. Oh, you're picking fights with me for the wrong crazy things. Because I believe that the Bible was literally written by God. 33 men wrote 66 books about one person named Jesus. And not just this generic design and creator out there. When I talk about a creator, I'm talking about Jesus. Everything was created for, by, and through Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the one that gives everything design. Start talking more about Jesus instead of just generic political issues, generic moralisms, and you see the scandals that will begin to arise in your life. Think about that we have a massive boat in northern Kentucky to prove the story of the flood is real. Evident. Look at this boat. Massive boat. All of the history of, the, of Noah and the flood. The only way they could survive. The only way the animals. Look where this really, this really happened. We really believe it really happened. And people think we're crazy because we really believe that happened. And we're really trying to get them to believe that happened. We spend millions of dollars. Please believe this boat really existed. And it did. And that's good. That's not a bad thing. You should go there. That is a fascinating place that will cause you to love your Bible even more. But it's more weird than that. Because we say that boat <laughs> points to a man. And if you don't believe in him, oh, there's something worse than a flood coming. The fires of hell will consume you forever. That's how crazy we are. That, that, that's how crazy we really are. We believe in a virgin birth. We believe that God caused Mary to become pregnant and within her was the second person of the Trinity. What's a Trinity? Oh, it's three in one. Three persons and they're all equally God and there's one God. How do you explain that? I don't know. There's not another one in the world. So it's really weird and it's really crazy. But we believe that happened in her womb, that, that the second person of the Trinity came into her womb and lived a perfect life and he never sinned. And he wasn't just a good man. We believe that on the cross, he endured the wrath for my sins. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Jesus endured the wrath for my sins. And three days later, after being hung on two pieces of wood in a cave in the ground, his eyelids flickered. His heart began to beat. And he got up and his feet touched the cold concrete floor. And he walked out of a first century coffin. I, we believe, that's weird. That's crazy. 
That is like one of those sci-fi movies on Netflix when you weren't, pretend, you, weren't, you weren't planning on wasting your Saturday. You said, this will be interesting. And you started watching it and you couldn't stop. That's the kind of things we believe are in the Bible. You can't make it cool. You can't make it trendy. You can't tell the story of the Bible and not like, look like a fool at some point. You can't. This is weird. This is crazy. But are we really known for this? When you tell your friends, yeah, I believe that the presence of God, the Spirit of God lives within me. We don't look any different. The Spirit of God Himself lives within you? Yeah, the Spirit of heaven that's making a new place for me to go and live forever lives within me now. The kingdom of heaven lives within me. That's weird. That's strange because of my faith in Jesus that God raised Him from the dead. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my King. And I gather once a week with these, these people in a warehouse. And we bring out cattle troughs. And we bring out little plates with thimbles of juice and bread. We do all these weird things to say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. In baptism, we mimic someone dying, buried, dead, and raised. And then we tell them, I'm going to rule and reign with Jesus forever. He's coming back on a white horse. And if you don't believe in him, you'll go to hell and be judged by him forever. There is no way to take all of that and make it more palatable. There's not. And if you really, really are telling the story of these things as true as reality in your own life, there's going to be tension. People are going to walk away, not just because they're offended, they just think you're a kook. And that's going to happen more and more in the culture in which we live. That these things are just kooky and weird. Why do you still believe these things? And notice Peter describes that in verse 17, for the time of judgment to begin has come at the household of God. Notice this, when he talks about suffering, he puts it in the context of the church. The church is suffering, and then he begins to use this judgment term. And the household of God here refers to the temple of God. And we, this makes sense when we think about Jesus. When Jesus came, what was one of the first things He did in His earthly ministry? He purged the temple. And that is the imagery that Peter's using here. As Christians suffer, there is a judgment of non-Christians who are in the household of God. They're being purged from it. They're, they're proving not to be real. And he says, it begins with us. And then he says, but, but hold on. The outcome for those who deny the gospel is much worse because they will be judged forever. We are facing this temporary purging of the household of God, but those who don't believe the gospel will be judged forever. And that's what he says in verse 18. He quotes scripture. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If God is his house, what will happen to those who aren't his? They will be judged forever. And then verse 19, he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He says, as you suffer, verses 17 through 19, 
There is design of God for the suffering upon Christians. And it's proving they're real. And what he says here with the household of God, he says God is refining His church to its pure and its real. And He's doing it by suffering. Suffering for the name of Jesus. Only those who are tied to the name of, the Je- name of Jesus by the Spirit will last. And, and they are to trust that God is doing something good. This word entrust here, it's a banking term. It, it means they are making an eternal investment. The Christian sees suffering for Jesus as better than hell. I'm gladly going to suffer with Jesus because the other is hell. So I'll bake on God's goodness in all this. I will trust in God's goodness even if I suffer. Now, this is exactly what we see in our own country right now. We, we like to talk about God judging America. And there's some truth to that. We live in a country that was once considered a Christian nation. It was founded upon Christian principles. All of that is true, and we seem to be losing our way, moving from these foundational principles. But what's more true than God just judging America is this. God is judging His church in America. The church in America who's had zillions of dollars for so long. And how many people have we reached with the gospel? The church in America has had zillions of resources. And what have we done with those resources? And what God is doing in our country is saying to us, I don't need you. I don't, I don't need your big buildings. I don't need your money. I don't need your reputation. I, I don't need you. And what's happening as we suffer in our own country is there is a purging of real Christianity. What, what we would call nominal or cultural Christianity where you are a Christian in name only, where you go to a church and your name is on a roll, where maybe sometime in your life you participate in the church's activities, where, where you call yourself a Christian, but you're not really a Christian. It's in name only because that's what you do in this culture, in this Christian nation. You call yourself a Christian because that's what you're supposed to do for leverage. Think about in your own context. I grew up in the South. And you used Christianity for your own benefit. I remember going to the beauty pageants of all things growing up. And what did all the girls do on stage? All their academic achievements. And they, and they would throw in, she's a member of the Mount Moriah Youth Group. And I would think, I haven't seen her in church in months. But it's important that she gets that on that resume at the beauty pageant for the judges. And we played that game too. Growing up, the deacons of my church ran my hometown. And they networked at church. That's where, that's where they did business at church. And they used their church membership for their business. I saw it. They ran the town. And that's where they networked. And Christianity was used for their own good. We used Christianity for our resumes, our job descriptions, transcripts for college. We, we, we used it for those things. But today, what will Christianity, using the name Christian in this cultural context, what will it get you today? 
Does it get you any benefits? Maybe some. There's still some leftover of that in our county, in our city. But for the most part, it's just something you put on Facebook, and if you want to get out of jury duty, tell them you're a conservative Christian. It works, I promise. <laughs> and then tell them you're a homeschool mom, and all your conservative views, and they'll let you not go to jury duty. I didn't tell them I was a homeschool mom. My wife did. But, but that's about it in our culture. That's where we're getting to in our culture. And what we're seeing in our culture is the rise of what are called nuns. Not Catholic nuns. Nuns. N-O-N-E-S. People who once were Christ, Christian in name only, who now there's no benefit to it, so they call themselves nothing. We're the nuns. We, we never really believed that stuff anyway. Why go through all the trouble now? We're, they're the nuns of the culture. And, and as the culture shifts, there's no reason to play the game Christianity. And I see it in my neighborhood every Sunday morning. When I leave my neighborhood, it's probably my family and two other families that went to church today. Probably two, two other families. And, and I live in a neighborhood, the average age is probably 60 to 65. And I know most of them grew up in church but they don't go to church anymore. Why? There's no reason to. It was just a name that they had growing up or in the family they, they helped raise. That was important at the time. But there's no reason to go through all the trouble now. And nobody on our uh, neighborhood Facebook page is going to make fun of them for not going to church today. Maybe that would have happened 20 years ago. It's not happening today. So who cares if we go to church? And who cares if we call ourselves a Christian? And, and, and here's the thing. Some of you are probably going, oh, he's, he's doom and gloom and this is horrible. No, this is good. This is really good. Because we're not seeing less Christians. We're seeing less lying non-Christians. And they're telling the truth about who they are. I'm not a Christian. I'm not going to fake it anymore. And guess what? I get to go to church on a Sunday with 60 to 65-year-old real Christians who really believe this, who believe it's true. They're not playing games. And there's a vibrancy in the church in these days. So I'm so excited to be a pastor in America today because there's a vibrancy to our Christianity. Because, you know, the nuns had kids. They had kids who grew up in youth group, going to youth group in a church where it was in name only, and they played the game, and mom and dad weren't real about it. And they got sick of fake cultural Christianity. And they went to EKU, and Jason Stories and Clifton Kraut shared the gospel with them. And they said, this is real. This isn't what I grew up with. And they believed the gospel. And now they want to go die on the mission field. Because it's real. It's real. It's not fake. It's not, it's not artificial. And the 60 to 65-year-olds and older, the senior saints around here, I don't want to say some of you are older than that, but you are. Because you really believe the gospel, you get to send them to the mission field. And because and, and you really believe it. 
And you're sending, you're going to send people from this church to places like we just saw on the screen earlier. In December, I opened up a news article and read of Christians who were arrested in a city that our missionaries from Ashland had just left. A Chinese pastor was in jail writing to the Chinese government. And that was a city where we had missionaries from our church. It's real. It's exciting. There's hope and there's joy in what is before us because it's not this fake cultural name-only Christianity. We get to grow up in a church where folks are, are making decisions about adoption and foster care. And just this week, just this week, Maybe as a pastor, I'm not counseling people who are going to lose their job because they're Christians. But this week, there's a family in our church who had a devastating court hearing because they're fostering kids. It was devastating to their soul. And, and you know, the nuns, their parents, not this particular family's parents, but, but in, most of the time in those situations... The parents are going, why are you fostering those kids? Why are you doing that? Because we believe the gospel. Oh, why would you go through all that pain and agony? And the suffering is coming from the people who were former fake Christians. And, And that's what's going on in our culture. Some of you in our culture... The the scandal in your life right now, older folks who are here who are Christians, is coming from your friends who used to be on deacon boards with you in churches and they didn't believe the gospel and they're wondering why you still believe the gospel. But there's a vibrancy to the church today that is exciting. People, People say, I want to go move to New Orleans because we're planting churches there. Why would you do that? Because I really believe the gospel. This is really real. And I'm a pastor trying to talk them into it every single Sunday. And when they come to me, I'm still shocked by it. Why would you do that? You have a good life here in Richmond. And then I sound like their parents. But, but that, that's what's going on in our culture. And that's where the scandal of Christianity is coming from. The tension of what used to be fake, what used to be artificial Christianity and real Christianity. They're at war and we're at the center of it. And, and we get to count it joy when we suffer for Jesus. We get to count it joy when we're proving that this is real. It's a scandal. But these are exciting days. And I know, I know in culture, society, there is media, thinks we're stupid. There's court cases. Those things are real. We have Christian businessmen who are going to court because they're Christians. Those things are real, and we should pray for them, and we should align with them. We should support them. But on a daily basis, this is where the tension is. Real Christianity, fake Christianity. And all week long, I thought, how do I wrap my, my mind around it? How do, how do I really communicate what's going on? And I thought about so many of you. I thought about the way you suffer for the name of Jesus. On your school campus, Thanksgiving meals. I thought about the way you're living out the gospel. The, the way you count it joy to really live and believe these things. 
the way you share in the sufferings of Christ. And maybe one day we'll, we'll stand in, in baptistries together and, and most of the world, family included, will say, yeah, you're just a silly little girl. That stuff's silly. And we turn and we say, no, it's the wisest thing we've ever done. 